Well, good morning, everyone. Um, about 30 years ago, my family was living in Germany, and when we went to Germany, uh, we did not really take much with us, and so when we arrived, we purchased most of our things. Our first Christmas rolled around, and we had to decide what to do about a Christmas tree. Now, most Germans at that time still use live Christmas trees in their homes. Artificial were much more common in America. But my wife found one in a store, an artificial one, that she really liked, so she decided to go ahead and buy it. She put it up in our house. It actually became a bit of a conversation piece for some of the Germans who would come to our house because they had rarely seen an artificial Christmas tree. Well, when we moved back to the United States, we brought that tree with us. And it kind of became our Christmas tree at home for the next 30 years. Well, this last year, my wife decided it might be time for a new one. Um, when she'd put some of the ornaments on that old artificial Christmas tree, the branches were beginning to droop because the wires, you know, were wearing out and so on. You could put the star on top of the tree and it kind of sagged to one side. Well, when our kids heard that she was going to replace the Christmas tree, you wouldn't believe the reaction. How dare she think about replacing their Christmas tree, the one they had known all their lives, even though they are adults. They didn't want to hear anything about it. But my wife decided to get brave anyway and replace the Christmas tree, which she did a year ago. She almost had a mutiny from our kids when she did, even though, like I said, they're adults today. And uh, I was fine with the replacing the old tree, but the new one she bought was taller than the old one. There's this clock in the living room that sits up high that I look at a lot, and I might have mentioned something about the new tree blocking my view of the clock, which probably wasn't a good idea. But hopefully all that was in fun, but maybe you have some traditions, you have some memories of Christmases at your house that uh, are good memories that you can hold on to. We still joke about that and smile about the Christmas tree. Um, sometimes it's related to ornaments. Do you have any special ornaments or ornaments that carry special meaning for you that perhaps you put on your Christmas tree? This series that we're going to do is called The Ornaments of Christmas. It should be a fun series. We're going to take a little different angle on it. We're going to look at ornaments like love and joy and peace and those kinds. But, you know, ornaments can carry significance, can carry special meaning. Um, several years ago, we sold this one here at the church. This is a ridge ornament that you can hang on your Christmas tree. And uh, we actually dug the extras we had out of the closet, we found some extras and offered them for sale um, for $5 each, but they sold out at the uh, 9.30 hour, so we don't have any more. I guess if you start coming at 9.30, you can get a few extras or something, I don't know. But um, um, this, is, this is the only one I know of that's for sale. It's ours, and uh, it goes to the highest bidder, okay? <laughs> They were $5 there, and it'll take probably five times that, but if you want, want to, feel free to let me know. Then you can hang on your tree instead of ours this year. Our, our family's kind of into sports and all that. For, so for years, sports ornaments have hung on our Christmas tree. Of course, we have the Chicago Bears one that hangs on the tree, the Notre Dame one that hangs on the tree, a basketball with the net and all that would hang on our tree. My youngest son... This was one of his favorites. This is Walter Payton from the Chicago Bears, a Christmas tree ornament that hung on our tree. And of course, we have the baby's first 
Christmas ornaments. You probably have those two that have hung on your tree. Um, here they are. You might notice, though, um, we have three children. <laughs> I only have two ornaments. <laughs> we don't know what happened to the third one. Uh, <laughs> you know, usually it's the final child, the last child that you forget all this. We can't find our oldest child first one on that, but uh, some of those are nice. Some of you, especially if you have dogs, you take their picture, put them on the tree. This one uh, was one of our dogs' um, picture, and it says, I heart my picture of the dog, and so on. Those are special to some of you. The handmade ones are special from your kids, aren't they? And they got to make the Christmas tree. My wife, of course, saved a number of those. Some of my favorites are the uh, ones with the pictures of them. You know, when they were little, and maybe at school or church or something, they had their picture taken, and then they made a Christmas tree ornament out of it. I always like those. I look at these and go, man, they look so innocent when I see those. And then we had the Christmas wreaths that they made. I thought those were pretty good. We have a manger scene that one of them made years ago, and um, this one's a gingerbread man. They probably hung on our trees as well. Here's one of my favorites. Um, I don't know which kid did this, but this goes way back. I don't know how old they were, but Apparently, they just took a paintbrush with different colors and just scribbled on it. Not a lot of artistic ability in our family, and, um, but that one's just kind of special just because of what it represents. But, you know, ornaments can carry special meaning, the handmade ones. The thing is, those handmade ornaments that I just showed you, you wouldn't pay five cents for them at a store, would you? They're only meaningful to us because they were made by our kids. But why are those homemade ornaments meaningful to us? Because... They're made with love. And they make no sense that you would hang them on a tree other than that. And today what we're going to talk about is something that makes no sense. That made no sense except for one explanation. Love. It takes us back to the first Christmas. It takes us back to Joseph. You've heard of Joseph, of course, in the Christmas story. And it's a choice he made to choose love, to do the loving thing. And it made no sense other than that explanation. And he had a choice. He could do what was expected in that situation, what he felt like doing, what most people would do. No one would blame him if he did it. Or he could respond in love. I think we would all agree that Christmas is a magnifier, wouldn't we? And what I mean by that, you know, Christmas magnifies the good things and makes them better. The music, the traditions, the food, the time with family and friends. At the same time, Christmas can also magnify the difficult things. What seems to be maybe just a little bit challenging during the year seems to be incredibly difficult during the holidays. What do you do when someone has hurt you? When someone has done you wrong, especially someone close to you, maybe it's someone you used to spend Christmas with, but you don't anymore because of what happened. Maybe it's someone you still have to spend Christmas with. And what makes it so miserable is because of what they've done. The person come to mind for you 
I mean, it could be some of those minor irritations that at Christmas are hard to overlook. And, you know, because we're in close proximity with people, we have to deal with it. Something like, you know, the relative who doesn't bring any food to the Christmas dinner where all the family's there, but they bring an empty Tupperware container, you know, and they're going to take it home with them. And, you know, who do they think they are? Or maybe it's the aunt who always gives you free advice on raising your kids every Christmas, unsolicited advice. And, you know, for whatever reason, the little things at Christmas can set us off in big ways. It's supposed to be the time of year when we remember Christ, but instead it can be very destructive. And sometimes it's with the people we love the most. So there are the little, the annoying things. But reality says that for many of us, there are significant hurts and wounds that emerge this time of year. Some of you have been betrayed in a significant way. Some of you have been let down, lied to, lied about, represented the wrong way, and it made you look bad. Some of you are going to go into family situations this Christmas that are very, very dysfunctional and hurtful and have been for years and years. Some of you have been abused in the worst way. And Christmas is just a magnifier of all that stuff. And you'd like it to go away, but it won't. Families end up being divided. Friends are separated. When it's time to remember that Jesus came into the world to bring peace, joy, and love. Listen closely. You will never be able to fully enjoy the grace of God without extending some grace to those around you. Let me repeat that. You will never be able to fully enjoy the grace of God without extending some grace to those around you. So that's what I want to talk about today, the ornament of love, responding in love even when you don't feel like it. Life is too short to live offended. Let me repeat that. Life is too short to live offended. Your life is too short to live offended. In fact, would you you mind reciting that with me? I'll personalize it for us, and we'll just say, my life is too short to live offended. Just so we get this. Will you repeat it with me? Here we go. My life is too short to live offended. Let's say it again. My life is too short to live offended. One more time. My life is too short to live offended. The Bible calls our lives a vapor, a mist, a morning fog. They're gone before we know it. You don't want to keep on carrying all these hurts around that others have inflicted on you, ruining Christmas after Christmas, let alone the rest of the year. So from the story of Joseph we can learn about how to let it go. And we can walk out of here today saying, with God's help, I'm getting over this. And by the way, perhaps you are the person you need to extend some grace to. It's yourself. So you need to apply these principles that we're going to talk about personally today. Let me read it to you, the Christmas story. This is Matthew chapter 1. You've probably heard a very familiar story. Um, I'm going to read starting in verse 18. Here's what it says. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. 
His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, when she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break off the engagement, to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. Very familiar story. We read it at Christmas time. Joseph is engaged to Mary. She becomes pregnant. Joseph knows he's not the father of the child. How would any of us react in a situation like that? Joseph's character is revealed in what we read in verse 19. It says that because he did not want to disgrace Mary publicly, he chose to break off the engagement quietly. He responded with love, the ornament of love. He extended grace. Even to someone he thought had hurt him deeply. Now they often say that our true character is revealed during the difficult times. You know, we, of course, we know the rest of this story, don't we? An angel appears to Joseph and says that Mary conceived through the Holy Spirit, so he takes her as his wife. But before Joseph knew this, he was still responding with grace toward Mary. And there's a verse in the Bible that I think really sets the tone for not only what we want to talk about today, but hopefully will set the tone for your holiday season this year. It's Proverbs 19.11, and it says this, Sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. Overlooking wrongs. That isn't what we want to do, is it? That's not our nature. We want justice for our wrongs. We want to hurt back the people who hurt us. We want to get even. I mean, that's why we love the movies, don't we? Like Rambo and Rambo 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 8 and 9. <laughs> now, we do need to recognize that overlooking is not the same as pretending it did not happen. It's overlooking the fact that it already did happen. It's a conscious decision to let it go. In other words, it's called forgiveness. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. It's deciding to rise above and choosing in the moment not to pay back. Um, I really like the way the New International Version words one of the phrases we read from Proverbs 19.11. So let me read it to you from the New International Version. It says, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. It is to one's glory. I like that. Anybody can get even. Anybody can be bitter. Anybody can hold a grudge. Anybody can pay back. But it's to one's glory to overlook an offense. Why? 
Because life is too short to live offended. Here's another way to say it. My life is too short to let someone else hold me hostage to my bitterness with what they've done to me. My life is too short for someone else's offense to distract me from what really matters. Bitterness, resentment, anger, revenge, it's all just wasted energy. Wouldn't you like to be free from that so that you can use that energy on something so much better? Some of you are spending way too much emotional energy on something that happened in the past or on someone who did you wrong. Spending emotional energy on an ex. Spending emotional energy on your mom or dad or a sibling or a former friend or a coworker. You need to let it go. So how do you do that? How do you get over it? How do you forgive? How do you extend some grace? How do you put on the ornament of love? Remember what we said earlier, with God's help, I'm getting over this? Let's get on the solution side of it. I want to show you what the Bible says, and I want to start in a book called Ephesians. Ephesians 4, verse 2, it says this, Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. There's the ornament of love. Making allowance for someone else's fault because of your love. And we said that with God's help, we're going to get over this. How? How do you, look to, how do you overlook an offense or make an allowance for someone else's faults? Well, first, we choose to love. And notice how that's worded. Love is a choice. Love is responding to the other person in a way that puts their interests above our own. Love says it's not about me, it's about you. I'll make the sacrifice. I'll do what's best in this situation. God's definition of love is not or it never is a feeling. It's a decision to do what's best for the other person. Even if it means I have to sacrifice. That's exactly what God did for us. And that's exactly what Joseph did. He chose to put Mary's best interest in that situation above his own. He didn't want to disgrace her, even though he had every right to, based on what he thought was true at the time. Talk about betrayal. To find out that the person he's engaged to is pregnant, and he's not the father. Yet he chose to respond in love. Forgiving someone else is a sacrifice. Essentially, what you're saying is that even though you've been hurt, you're going to choose to not hurt back. Love says, I'll release you from the offense. Consider it this way. There are really two choices we have in situations where we've been wrong to hurt. One is we can rehearse it, and that's what we often do. I can't believe she said that. I can't believe he treated me that way. I should give her a piece of my mind. I should give him the silent treatment. Or we fantasize about how we would like to pay them back. In other words, we rehearse it over and over and over again in our minds. When we do that, we're hurting ourselves. 
Rehearsing it just feeds our bitterness and our anger and drives us it deeper into our hearts. We become imprisoned to what someone else has done to us. Or with God's help, we can release it. That's our other option. Which leads to the next way to overlook an offense, and it's this. We choose to let it go. I'm going to move on. It's to my glory to overlook an offense. Now, the process of forgiveness can take time. Letting go doesn't mean you'll never think about it again or the bitter feelings won't surface again. There are some who make a decision and they can move on. But for others, in time, this is probably more often the case than not, it's a decision. When it resurfaces, they remind themselves that they've chosen to forgive, that they've chosen not to pay back, and they let it go. When it surfaces, they forgive again. And with God's help, over time, if you take that option, you will find that the intensity of your emotions, your anger, your bitterness, your resentment will begin to subside. But it begins with a choice to let go. So how do we let go? How do we forgive? Well, the basis for our forgiveness is rooted in our relationship with God. Uh, check out another verse in the Bible. This is a book called Colossians. Colossians 3.13 says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. That's the letting go part. But what's the basis for that? How do you do that? Here's how the verse continues. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. The Lord forgave you. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We forgive in the same way we've been forgiven. And there are no yeah buts or you know, strings attached to it. Yeah, but if only you knew what she said. Yeah, but if only you knew what he did. We forgive because we've freely been forgiven by God. You know, if you take the accumulation of all my sins over the years, the times I've let people down, the times I've put myself above others, the times I haven't been sensitive to someone else's needs, the times I've been less than honest, the times I was a jerk when I was driving, the times that I blatantly sinned against God, I have a lot to be forgiven. So how do I forgive someone else? How do I forgive someone that's unforgivable? Just like I've been forgiven. Now, we mentioned it can be a process, but God can help you do it. Ask him to help you. Pray about it. And I know some of you have been hurt in the worst way. Perhaps it was abuse. Maybe it was a spouse who was unfaithful to you. But if you hold on to it, if you keep on rehearsing it, it's still going to control you. And you don't want that. Don't let what someone else did hold you hostage. Life is too short to live offended. You want freedom. You want peace. You want joy. 
Let it go, just like God has let go of all the sins you've committed against him. God extended love and grace to you when Jesus came and died for us. And so we can do the same for others. We say, I'm over it. I'm moving on. Now let's make sure there aren't some misconceptions. Sometimes we think that forgiveness means that the hurt will go away and we'll never remember it again, that we'll just forget about it. Forgiveness is just saying that we're letting go because of what God has done for us. Andy Stanley puts it this way. He says, true forgiveness is more about remembering than forgetting. It involves facing the past, not suppressing it. Andy Stanley, who's a pastor in the Atlanta area, said that in his book called Louder Than Words. It's a great book. And I think the best chapter in that book, it's a chapter called Letting Go of the Past. And in that chapter, he describes a three-step process to forgive. Step one is to charge the defendant. If you've been hurt, you have to identify what that is, and as specifically as possible. You have to start by pinpointing it. Often it's not what it first appears to be. It's something deeper than that. Did someone say something false about you? Then someone took your good reputation and perhaps robbed you of the potential of a promotion or even a potential relationship. Perhaps your father left you when you were a child. He robbed you of the experience of growing up with a dad who was there for you. Jesus equated forgiveness with canceling a debt. But in order to cancel the debt, you have to know what debt needs to be canceled. So that's the first step. The second step, the next step, is to drop the charges. That means proclaiming that the offending person does not owe you anything anymore. Instead of pressing the charges, you drop the case. Just as Jesus canceled the debt of your sin when he hung on a cross, so we cancel the debts that others have incurred against us. It can be as simple as praying a prayer like, Father in heaven, my dad took my experience as a child away from me when I was growing up by leaving, and I've held on to this long enough I've decided to cancel the debt. My debt doesn't owe me anymore. Just as you forgave me, I'm forgiving dad. Remember, it's a decision. It's not a feeling. Then finally, dismiss the case. The final step in the process is a daily decision not to reopen the case. What makes it difficult is that feelings don't always immediately follow our decision to forgive. Furthermore, choosing to forgive doesn't erase our memories. And when you remember, old feelings recur, don't they? They surface again. So what do you do with that? And I think this is the brilliance of what Stanley says. He says, when memories of the past flood your mind, he says, go ahead and face them. Allow yourself to remember what happened. It's okay to feel the emotion that that memory elicits. But instead of reopening the case and rehearsing images of revenge, use it as an opportunity to remind yourself that you have forgiven. I told God that that debt was canceled. 
So it's canceled. Our memories are not enemies of forgiveness. Memories are simply memories. What we do with the memories determines their impact. What we do with the memories determines their impact. And here's where the hope is. When you begin to work through this process, perhaps you have to go through it time and time again, you will find that over time the intensity of those feelings begin to lessen. And you'll begin to experience peace and joy instead of anger and bitterness. Forgiving someone won't change the past, but it sure does change your future. Think about Joseph. Look what God did because Joseph was willing to let it go. (laughs) He ended up raising the Son of God, the Messiah, because Joseph put on the ornament of love. We can do the same, and it makes Christmas so much better. So extend some grace this holiday season. Choose the ornament of love. After all, that's what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. God, when we think about all that you've done for us by sending Jesus into our world to go to a cross and die, to take all our sins on himself so that the, our, the debt of our sin could be canceled and that we can be forgiven by reaching out for you and accepting that forgiveness. God, my prayer is that when we think about that, that it will so change us, transform us, that we will um, be overwhelmed by your grace And as a result, extend some grace to those around us. Thank you for forgiving us. And my prayer is that because you've forgiven us, we can forgive others. So that we could go into this Christmas season experiencing love and joy and peace and grace. Rather than all the angerness and bitterness that is often associated with it. Thank you, God, for giving us hope. And thank you for the Christmas message in the message of grace and love we find in it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.